0: So many of you know that I I spent time in India about two years. I was doing mission work there, and one of the families that I lived with had servants. But don't think of that in a way like it's not because this family was wealthy or anything. It's just it was actually a pastor family, and they had servants because it was their way of helping people that otherwise would have absolutely nothing. And so the lead servant, Umed was his name. He was a great guy, and. He, he actually uh, lived there. He lived with us. And he would send his money home to his family that was about 500 miles away, actually, in a very poor village. But So Umed was great. And during the day, he would bring us tea different times. And depending where I was, usually in the afternoon I'd be in my room studying, and he would just come to the door and he'd put it on the threshold of the door or wait till I came and took it from him. He wouldn't come in my room. No matter how many times I told him, just come in my room, Ahmed. And he wouldn't. And I'd try to joke with him, and he wouldn't. So one morning, I I got up super early, like four in the morning before he got up. And I got to the kitchen before him, and I made him breakfast. He wouldn't eat it. He was horrified that I had made him breakfast. And this wasn't because he was afraid of being punished. The owners had told him, Umed, just do what David wants. He just wants to be your friend. He wants to serve you, et cetera. This was humility on a level I couldn't understand. I couldn't wrap my head around this. I just figured he was so afraid, but he, he wasn't afraid. He was told it's perfectly fine. He was simply convinced of his unworthiness. Convinced of it. He was simply least, last, and for all intents and purposes, he was dead to the ways of society that functioned above him. We see these exact same kind of people in our parable today, though it's very difficult to catch with the simple English translation. Then the master told the servant, "Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full." So we've been in the series. Now this is the third week. We got one more week to go over this passage of scripture. For those of you that didn't catch the first two, they're online. I, I encourage it. But we have seen just as, just a little. I'll step back just, just a tiny bit. We have seen. That Jesus had already told his servant to bring to the great banquet the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And remember, as we explored that, we found out that in Christian language, this is the sinners. Right? These are the sinners that have been brought to the table. Remember, scripture would support that for them. That crippled, crippled, blind, and lame, according to Leviticus, these are sinners. These are unclean people. They were the unclean of their day. So, all the clean people had rejected the invitation, and that's why the host went and got the sinners. But the hall still wasn't full, so that's when he sends his servant back out. And this language in the original is about the untouchables of society. Okay, That's who we're dealing with here. Now, they needed to be convinced that the invitation was true. This is the word compel. It's a very strong word in the original language. Very strong they need to be convinced. So, There's a 10th century Middle Eastern New Testament scholar, Ibn al-Tayyid, he helps us grasp what's happening here in this culture. This does not mean compulsion or force or persecution, but refers to the strength of the need for urgent solicitation because those living outside of town see themselves unworthy to enter into the places of the rich and eat banquets. Such outsiders need someone to confirm there is indeed a welcome awaiting them. Okay? So that's what's going on when he's going out to compel. For these folks, it was simply too good to be true. Too good to be true. Why would I, the outcast, they thought, be invited to feast at a rich man's table? There must be a catch. The invitation can't really be serious. And you know, when you think about it, that's the gospel we present sometimes, isn't it? The gospel with a catch. We like to claim that God loves everyone, and God will, will welcome everyone, right? But then the second they're in, grace goes out to them, right? It's smoke and mirrors. Bono, who most of you know my favorite singer, one of my favorite songs, he says this, he speaks to this idea of, of this grace and then no grace. He says, you say love is a temple, love a higher law. You ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. Christianity can be like that, can it? We do that to us. We tell people, oh, you're welcome. But then the second they step in, uh, they're not so welcome anymore. If they don't clean themselves up. And we don't have the patience to let God clean them up. Who's the only one that can? And then the other thing we do, which is a strange way of doing this and why people like these untouchables are suspicious of this invitation and need to be compelled, is we'll, we'll speak Christianity, especially here in the West, we will speak this beautiful gospel of love, but then in our churches, we will make it known that certain people aren't welcome. Right? Don't you find it fascinating now that there is actually language around churches that welcome everyone. They need to do that because the majority of people think most churches don't welcome everyone. Is that strange? Like, have you ever thought about that? That's strange. God, how, like, when you really start thinking about the gospel, then you think about these things, and you're like, and you hear them, and you and, and, and you listen, and and I've been there, and I'm still there at certain levels, and then I think, what am I doing? Why do I believe in grace? Or not. If grace gets us in, why would grace suddenly disappear? And this is why this parable is so important for all of us. Especially those of us in the church. I think grace disappears because grace is so hard to believe in. Grace, true grace, is always difficult to believe because it's actually ludicrous. Right? It's ludicrous. When you think about it. This is why some of you remember, Alice always remembers, but a number of years ago, I think it's five years ago now, or maybe six years ago, we went through the parables for an entire year, and I used to call God the Mad Hatter. This is why I called him the Mad Hatter, because grace is so ludicrous, grace doesn't make sense. It's so difficult to believe in. It's hard to believe in for the down and out, and the up and in, because we all live under this premise. That the world should function according to the rule that you get what you deserve. Christians would be the first ones to rip apart, you know, Hindu teaching on karma, <laughs> but we believe in it. We believe in karma so much. You get what you deserve. I am still trapped by karma. Last night, whew, last night I blew it bad, and uh, it was so funny. Like I was disgusted with myself for blowing it. But then I had this weird place I went where I was like, oh, no, that's going to cause God to do this, and that's going to happen. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing, and I realized, I'm like, wow, I, I teach grace, and I struggle believing in it. I was convinced, I was like, this is going to ruin the future. Karma. We, are, we live in this. We are convinced of this, or at least, I, this is why I teach about grace. I'm trying to believe in it myself, Right? So, the outcasts are convinced they don't deserve to be invited, so they resist the invitation. But here's the challenge for us. The proper folks think they deserve to be invited, so they reject the invitation. There's the two-edged sword. One half thinks they don't deserve grace, and the other half thinks they don't need it. Either way, humans just simply have a hard time coming to terms with believing and dealing with grace. So foreign, so alien. And it seems no easier for Christians. Many of us who claim to follow Christ, like I just explained about myself, spend most of our time trying to explain how grace can't possibly be the whole story. (laughs) It can't possibly be the whole story. While instead of trying to explain that, we should try living into it. And I think, again, that happens because we maybe have embraced a Christian tradition where it isn't so much about needing the grace of God... And as you you caught the theme in the songs I've been playing, the the opening video and then that song I just played, I think maybe we've embraced this tradition where it isn't about needing the grace of God as is about needing to be either morally above reproach or to know the correct doctrine or to say the correct prayer or to belong to the correct group, etc., etc., etc. So our gospel message has become about a transaction with God, not the free gift of grace. But if we have to transact with God, let's think about this. How big could God possibly be if we can transact with him? Like first of all, let's think about that. If we could appease God honestly, is he big? Or is he, that to me seems pretty little, if you can appease the creator of this universe. And second, even if we could appease him, now who's right about what it takes to appease him? Right? See, this is the challenge. This is why when we start to get into it, and I know we can say, well, people just interpret different things and believe different things and on and on, and I I get all that and I understand that whole thing, but at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is appeasing God, and we're doing it right and you're doing it wrong, therefore you're out and we're in. Do you see what I mean? Where this great banquet parable is so important for us, both as believers and non-believers, because it's really exploring, really, who God is. And so, if we are going to tell the story of transacting with God, perhaps we're no longer telling the good news, the great story of Jesus Christ. And that's important. We have to speak that to others and to ourselves. See, here's the good news. According to this incredible revelation of God that Jesus Christ gives. Not me. I didn't tell this parable. Jesus did. You can't pay for God's grace. You can't. There's nothing we can do to make God love us. He loves us, period. There's nothing we can do. In Philip Yancey's great book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he said, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do that will make God love us less." That's one of the great lines captures the gospel. We're invited to his banquet for one reason. He wants us there. That's it. That's the only reason we're invited to his banquet. He wants us there. And I can't stress how important it is to understand this incredible truth. This might be the most important truth in all of scripture. If we can just grasp it, it changes our lives. It can change everything. Listen, the host invited these people to his banquet purely because he wanted them there. No other reason. There is no other reason. That's why he invited them there. He wanted them there. They did nothing. They did not ask him. They did not turn to him. They did not grovel for his invitation. They did not promise to repay him. They couldn't repay him. They were living in their own little worlds, completely lost in their uncleanness and pitiful existence when all of a sudden they are being compelled to come to the greatest party ever. That's the, ban- that's the banquet parable that Jesus is telling. I'm not telling it. And Jesus is telling this about God. Capture this. Okay? Kate Juan says this wonderfully. This might be my favorite, favorite quote of all time about the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it is irreverent. And if you're offended, I'm sorry, but this is absolutely captures. Perfectly, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason for dragging the refuse of humanity into the party is not pity for its plight or admiration for its lowliness, but simply the fact that this idiot of a host has decided to have a full house. Love that. Grace, accordingly, is not depicted here as a response. Above all, it is not depicted as a fair response or an equitable response, or a proportionate response. Rather, it is shown as crazy initiative. And there's the problem with the gospel of grace. And there's the problem with the Christian grace. Because we want fairness, we want equity, we want proportion. Right? We want it. All the time. And yet Jesus says, well, actually, that's just not how it works in my kingdom. Mm. Power. Grace is not a reaction and, and, and this is important because I, I don't think I learned this until much later in my life and I'm still trying to come to terms that grace is not a reaction of God to our sin and our begging for mercy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel of transaction. It's not a story of God's reaction. And I think that's vital. That's a paradigm shift in understanding the biblical narrative. For so long, that's right, Emily. Emily. I finally got an amen. I've been waiting for an amen, Emily. You nailed it. God initiates grace because he loves us, full stop. To read the biblical narrative differently is to be misled by what the Bible is trying to say. See, think about this. Peter said Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. That means Jesus Christ was crucified for us before the fall. You can't read the Bible and think it is a reaction of God to our sin. It is who God is. It's what God has always done and always will do. So then, here's what is challenging and powerful for us. The ones who are in have said yes to his invitation have humbly received grace. The ones who are out have said no to his invitation, have rejected grace as the truth upon which God's kingdom functions. This changes everything. I want you to think about it. The us-them paradigm that we live in in this world, which right now culturally is at an extreme. Us-them, in-out, left-right, that there. This is all based on an inherent evaluation of someone else's, I'm sorry, an evaluation of someone else's inherent worth. That's all it's based on. You are being, we are being judged by each other, and that is determining this entire cultural paradigm. In, out, left, right, good, bad, deserving of help, not deserving of help. On and on and on. And when we bring that into religion, God loves you, God doesn't love you. That's not what the parable of banquet says. The only thing in this parable, according to Jesus Christ, that is separating anything is some people are humble enough to receive grace and some people aren't. That's it. So to catch this, we have to believe it. That's the road. That's the road. Can we believe in grace? That's what I'm asking you this morning. Can we believe in grace? Can we be humble enough to receive it? If God is the God Jesus revealed, and I believe that without apology, I believe God is the God Jesus revealed, then we have to come to terms with grace, for it's the only party in town. That's it. That's the only party there is. There's no other party. So then, this is why Jesus said so many challenging things about him, his way, right? Remember this word? Remember he said, narrow is the road and few there are who find it? Challenging. Unless you become a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God? Challenging. No one comes to the Father but through me, etc., etc. All these challenging things that we want to make imperative, that we want to make transactional. They're not. Jesus is simply stating a truth. Grace is serious because grace is all there is. And I'm sorry, the majority of you are never going to believe in grace because you think you don't need it. That's why it's a narrow road. It's hard. I don't, I say I believe it, and I still don't want to live in it. And I'm teaching because I want to know this truth about grace. Grace is our only hope. It's the only way to reject grace is ultimately, I believe, to reject God, period. Not God rejecting us, just rejecting God. Now, consider how he made, Jesus made some of the most challenging statements immediately after he told this parable. That's why I had Jen read to the end of the chapter. Okay, he said, right after he tells this parable, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate your family, you're not worthy to be my disciple. There's a challenge. He says, and whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Brutal. And in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Tough statement. Now, interesting enough, these are often taken out of context. Quoted by themselves. Used to support teachings on a disciplined life and transactionalism for so-called disciples of Jesus, which... People claim it's something different than just believing in Jesus, I guess. But in being so used, they change the whole gospel story. Or they're told in such a way that they give us actually freedom to ignore them because it's for advanced disciples. (laughs) So I have two issues with these teachings. And some of you will laugh because it sounds like some of you sat under this kind of teaching. I did, for years. So here's the thing. I have two issues. One is, the cross... The gospel is not merely the beginning of Christianity. This was, this, this was the sad hangover from some great evangelical work that some beautiful men and women have done in this world. Beautiful. I love Billy Graham. Love him. Love him, love him. Beautiful, beautiful work. But sadly, without proper ongoing follow-up, That incredible work Billy Graham did turned into this thing, this dichotomy of you can be a sinner and and God loves you, but these kind of things are for disciples and that's next. No, 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 that's not what Billy Graham was saying. But I think it got interpreted that way. So anyway, and, and, and we make gospel the beginning of Christianity and then we have to go further and deeper and more in. But wait a second. The gospel is not merely the beginning of Christianity. It's not a simple portal into relationship with God. It's the beginning, middle, and end. Timothy Keller, a very conservative Bible scholar, he writes this. We are not only saved by the gospel, but we also now grow by the gospel. We go on as we began, having our hearts melted and molded by knowing and trusting Christ crucified. We never move on from the gospel. We never can and never need to. This is powerful. This is why we're going into Galatians. This is is our bridge to the Galatians series. This is why Paul was all worked up about people changing the gospel to adding to it. This is everything. You know, sometimes you ever wonder, why am I not growing more into Christ-likeness? I think it's because we forget the gospel. We're not in the gospel. Which is what this is about. This parable is about. That's why I'm so excited to be teaching on it. You can tell I'm getting all worked up. I'm sweating and, and I'm all excited because I love this parable. So, and the second reason, I challenge those those teachings about these difficult statements. Is we find, where do we find these statements? Where did the Holy Spirit put these put these statements tucked in between the two most incredible parables Jesus ever told to reveal to us that God is all about? The parable of the great banquet and the prodigal son and Jesus. These these difficult statements get tucked in right there purposefully. So grace will help us interpret them and they'll help us interpret grace. We can't take things out of context. We have to read scripture. So, I'm going to wrap up today. I'm not purposely going on because I found out 11.15. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to wrap up by considering the first of the difficult statements. And then next week, we're going to wrap up the whole series by going over the rest of the difficult statements that he makes. Okay? And then we're going to transition to St. Paul's letter. so, Christ ends the parable with a difficult statement. He says, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, you notice the grammar shift there? It was, a ser- it was a host and a servant, and now it's my banquet. There are many scholars who believe that this grammatical change in the original suggests that Jesus has probably crossed over from parable and to reality, and he's now speaking of his very own world banquet. Which, if that is true, that is another subtle claim to him being God. For those of us who... who, who, There are always challenges that Jesus never claimed to be God. He did. Subtly and straightforward. But at least here, whether he has crossed over into his own world or the voice is still from the parable, the point is the same. And this is what we have to get. It seems like a difficult, challenging statement. A God not of grace. No. The point he's making is this. These men are not at the party because they rejected the invitation. Period. Period. This is not a reactionary judgment. God is not reactionary. God acted invitation. God acted, created the world. And I said that personally, invitation, then created the world. Why do I say it that way? Because God died before the foundations of this world. He acted, invitation, grace was the first thing. Then we came along and blew it, but the invitation didn't go away. The invitation stayed, because grace was already in existence, and grace will always be in existence. So, these men have removed themselves from the workings of grace. Here's the beautiful part of this. Should they change their tune, they will most certainly be welcome at the banquet, because the invitation hasn't been rescinded. There's no rescinding of God's invitation. But these people aren't coming. Remember the beginning of the parable? Master, I don't know, they're not coming. They all made excuses. Okay, well, they're never going to sit at my banquet then. Do you see? It's on us. So Jesus sounds this harsh warning, and maybe that's why I'm all worked up, because he knows that, that they are so convinced the attendance at the banquet is on their terms that they will never be humble enough to receive grace. This has got to challenge us. This has got to make us think. It has to. Especially in our American Western world. Listen, the theme of this parable and of these difficult statements, as we'll continue to see next week, is who is in, who is out. It's about our receiving of God's grace, nothing else. The who is in, who is out paradigm is not a judgment of God on us. It is purely a receiving of grace or not. Puts us all in the same boat, doesn't it? Boy, does that break down these cultural divides that we're living amongst. We're all in the same boat. And that's why we hate grace. There's the ludicrousness of it. Because, and I know what my good friend's thinking over here, and I know what I'm thinking, and I know what many of you are thinking I'm not like that person. Not a chance. I'm not the same. That's not me, and that'll never be me. That's the ludicrousness of grace. We either accept that we're all the same, or we are rejecting grace. This this is the gospel. The great, wonderful news, but there's the great demand of the gospel. Either accept you're all the same, or you're rejecting grace. Stodgrass explains it this way. We cannot have the kingdom on our terms. The invitation of grace brings with it demand. That hymn Dave and Joanna saying this morning, I will not boast in anything. When we all sing, or at least most of us are singing. But do we believe that? I won't boast in power, I won't boast in wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Is that really how we think about this? Or do we subtly think we belong? Because of something inherent in us that makes us better than the other person. That makes us different than the other person. That keeps this paradigm shift going. So what is the demand of grace? Be the last, be the least, be the dead. Because those are exactly the people who get made first, and alive. That's it. So all the things that we cling to that make us think we have life are the exact things that so often keep us from receiving grace. For this life we covet and all the things in it are the stuff that make us think we're winners, that make us think we belong at the banquet, that make us think we deserve the invitation. And how sad is it, and I know I'm rambling now, but I'm sorry, how sad is it when this table gets turned into that? And you have to be worthy of that table. And the reason we have that table, according to St. Paul in Scripture, is because you can never be worthy. So we need this table. If we could be worthy of God's love, this table wouldn't exist because Jesus never would have died. He just would have come and said, hey, here's what you got to do. You kill enough village virgins, do this, do that, he'll be appeased, and then you're in. That's not how it works. He's died, so we would be there. But, so... When we think we deserve the invitation, that is exactly what rejection of the invitation looks like. Winners think they don't need grace. Capon says, all, I love this, another Capon. Listen, this banquet says, all you have to be is a certified loser, and God will send his servant Jesus to positively drag you into his house. Oh! And another good favorite writer of mine, he starts off this book where he's talking about a lot of this stuff, and he says... It's this beautiful prayer, like, okay, God, so how do I, how do I, how do I share this? This is going to be so rejected. (laughs) Right? I, I just said we need to be losers. In a country, that's all about winners. But the losers are at the party. So, God's throwing a party. Are we winners with something else on our calendars? Or are we losers enough to go to the greatest party ever thrown Oh, my